song you just heard is Dog of War by the Hell Yeah Babies, which means I'm Nick Bond. I'm David Gibb. And this is how wrestling explains Episodio Musianate today, Dave. Whoa, whoa, whoa. This is American, Nick. <laughs> uh, I am, of course, referencing Otto, who is Kevin Klein's character in A Fish Called Wanda. When I first asked you if you'd seen it, you had said the last time you saw it was in high school, right? Yeah, you know, I think I, I saw this movie at about 15, and then I hadn't seen it again until... Uh, until just the other day, so so about 30-ish, a little more than that. Uh, so yeah, I've seen this movie twice in my life, 15 years apart, and I gotta say that this is a way different movie as an adult than what I remembered. Like, I remembered the plot, but definitely what's funny about this movie and which parts are the funniest is is something that's really evolved for me. Yeah, yeah, they, they, it's both broad. Uh, it, it, uh, so to start, I should say, it is a caper. It is a, about a diamond heist and after the diamond heist, uh, the different people that took part in the heist screwing each other over, basically. Um, and then John Cleese gets involved and things get weird. Kevin Klein's character, I mentioned at the beginning, uh, is a very broad character. And a lot of the stuff that happens in this movie is really broad. But we were just talking about the fact that although this isn't like a laugh a minute riot, it's one of the funniest movies you can watch. It is sincerely like... Oh, a just sincerely hilarious movie. Yeah, and there's all sorts of comedy in this movie. That's one thing that really struck me. This this kind of came around in the late 80s during kind of the boom of like dark comedy or what they call in England black comedy uh, a lot of the time. Like this was during that boom and this movie certainly has that sensibility. But like at the same time, there's there's elements of like slapstick in this movie and there's elements of sort of old school movie comedy from like the golden age of Hollywood and stuff like this movie it has a great story, but I think it's almost sort of just like a love letter to comedy movies and all the different ways that you can be funny on screen with dialogue and with body language and with ridiculous visual juxtaposition and things like that. It, it does so by also being a really good caper, uh, which is slightly different from a heist in the sense that it's usually it comes with a little bit of humor. Uh, the great Muppets caper in particular is, is the, the best example uh, that it, both in a heist and a caper, usually you can see what's happening. There's no question as to who did what. Um, and I think that actually leans into uh, humor in a way that if you can keep it going, which this movie does, this movie does not suffer from the usual third act problems that you see in movies. Uh, you can really get something great out of it. And what's really great is that they have uh, a lot of performers in this movie, a lot of actors in this movie, I should say, that really are fit for their jobs. And in particular for me, and the reason we picked Sherry was that Jamie Lee Curtis is such a mind-blowingly great femme fatale in this movie. It's it's really, she is the most charming human being I think I've ever seen. That, that's something that comes across, you know, in the movie is that at every opportunity she's, she's using her charisma and her adaptability and her like ability to know what someone wants to hear in the moment to get through things. And in fact, up until the very last scene in the movie, there's no moment where you're really sure she's being truly sincere and, and she pulls it off great. But at the same time, as she like floats from character to character in much the same way that like Sherry would go from wrestler to wrestler. And we talked about in the previous episode, it kind of shows you like who has the strategic advantage or who's in the position of power at this moment in the caper or the post caper or post 
heist meltdown that's going on. So she's got a really, really intriguing part and something that in the wrong hands, both in terms of director and performance could have been like really, really gross and misogynistic, but like she pulls it off and like, you can't watch this movie and not love that character. Yeah. Wanda, she plays Wanda, the, not the titular Wanda. The titular Wanda is actually a fish named Wanda who we'll get to later. R.I.P. Spoiler alert. We're going to spoil everything in this movie. Um, and it, her character is kind of a traditional character. And I think, again, this is because her her character or her character type is that traditional femme fatale, but it's thrown in this new context, right? Uh, you know a lot more about noir than I do. It, uh, am I using femme fatale correctly? I probably We probably should have talked about this before the episode, but femme fatale, that, that, can you give maybe me a little bit of an idea if I'm using it wrong. Yeah, yeah. I mean, femme fatale literally means deadly woman in French, right? And uh, it's a term that's applied to a character type uh, largely in cinema and that was mostly developed in the 40s and early 50s in the the B-movie film noir era. And um, those were really two-fisted, masculine, uh, chauvinistic, misogynistic movies oftentimes or as often as not. And in those movies, uh, the, generally there was this woman who was untrustworthy, who presented herself as being in need, who presented herself as the ingenue, which is another film study term for like the, the innocent woman. Uh, so like she presents herself as being the ingenue at first and really, really needing help and really making often the protagonist feel like he's a hero by helping her. But then usually late in the second act or at some point in the second act, it's revealed that she's actually a really either evil and dangerous for him or has a very, very complicated backstory that becomes dangerous for him or has ulterior motives, which become dangerous for him. Like the ultimate example is Barbara Stanwyck in Double Indemnity, which is just one of the great movies of all time uh, from 1944. But, but in Double Indemnity, there's this just normal insurance guy and uh, he's, he's called to the Barbara Stanwyck character's house and she tells him like, oh, you know, I really want to get this insurance policy on my husband. And, and over the course of a few meetings, she kind of seduces this guy and tells him what a bad dude her husband is. And eventually the, convinces him that let help me take out this huge insurance policy on my husband and then you're going to help me kill my husband and we can be together. And so that's kind of the the great ultimate example of, of the femme fatale, the, the, the woman who uh, presents herself as being innocent and makes the, makes the protagonist who's just kind of a normal schlub feel like a hero for a while, but then it's ultimately just because she's manipulating him. And, and often at the end, they, they, they're often kind of both brought low that like, you know, that, that she, uh, that, that, that she gets him in trouble, but he also brings her down too. like, you see that in double indemnity, you see that in, out of the past. And both of those were remade in the 80s. Double Indemnity is Body Heat and uh, Out of the Past is Against All Odds. So so in this 80s era, when Fish Called Wanda is being made, a lot of these femme fatale tropes from the 40s are definitely being, being revisited. And the Jamie Lee Curtis character is absolutely a response to that. So, so it's definitely this idea of a character who is defined by being very, very alluring, uh, but also very, very destructive and dangerous. That sounds so much like Sherry. It's almost kind of shocking. Uh, it almost feels as though one was based on, like, not 
that Jamie Lee Curtis was based off of, but that they, they kind of inform each other. And I think it's because they both come from this specific genre idea of a woman as an agent of like precision chaos, I guess is the best way to just like their focused frenzy of uh, character both both Jamie Lee Curtis and Sherry are these characters that are they're not quite like bulls in china shops they're like they're they're just there to get what they want and get in and get out and if they can do so smoothly great but if they have to get their hands dirty they're not above that and I, I think that's one of the two ways in which they're defined. I think the other way, and I think it's literally in their name, like Jamie Lee Curtis was known as the bod in the eighties and sensational Sherry's name was literally sensational or sensuous Sherry that they're defined by their sexiness. They're alluring. They're, um, I don't know if that, that how alluring they are. That's what it is. Uh, how alluring they are, even though they're obviously world-class talents, like Jamie Lee Curtis is um, like we just said, incredibly charming, but also like drop dead funny. Like what she's hilarious in this movie, but she's treated in large part as like a, just an attractive sex symbol. And that's been the case kind of, even since she started in Halloween, like this was one of the first movies that people saw and were like, Oh, she can actually act. And it's like, no, she's been able to act this entire time. You're just think she's attractive and therefore think she can't act. And I think that's what happened with Sherry. She's treated as this like sexual, hyper-sexualized person. And it's like, she's also a great fucking wrestler. Yeah, definitely. And I think both of them kind of used the same spot a little bit. And both uh, Jamie Lee Curtis in this movie for comedy and Sherry throughout her career, which is like the legs up in the air kicking around, which is like, you know, both, both very sexualized, but very like cartoonish and goofy. And there's, there's several moments in this movie where she, there's a moment where she gets pushed over the back of a couch and she like falls with her feet over her head. Or there's another moment where she's having sex with the Kevin Klein character. And there's these, there's this shot of her legs in the foreground and, and you, and you just kind of see them tweaking around in different directions. And like, it's an interesting or it's a difficult thing to pull off to be, to be using your body in a very hot sexualized way, but also in a very legitimately kind of bizarre comedic way at the same time. And I think that that's a skill that Jamie Lee Curtis exhibits in this movie that that we talked about Sherry having a lot in part Yeah, one. there's a specific, she has a, uh, I, I think we can call it a fetish. Uh, Jamie Lee Curtis's character has a fetish uh, for men who speak foreign languages. And there's a part where she's like writhing around on the floor while... Ju- uh, straddling a rope at one point. Yeah, it's really explicit. Uh, while John Cleese's character is, and I actually put a dro- this drop in the, I, I, the last episode, in the Yellow Submarine episode of him speaking Italian because he's actually Italian. It turns out like she's dating Otto who we'll get to in a minute uh, in part because he, or dating might be a strong word. She's involved with Otto in small part because he speaks Italian, but spoiler alert, he doesn't actually speak Italian, <laughs> which we'll also get to later. Cause it's, <laughs> he's literally just, scre- like, we don't have to, he's literally just screaming Italian dishes. like <laughs> Ordering like the most basic things on every Italian menu. <laughs> I didn't notice until he says Malanese or whatever. Like he uses like a a word that's only used in the culinary context in terms of Italian. Like it's just hilarious. And it's this idea of being sexy. There's a Will Smith once said, you can't be sexy and funny at the same time. But like having watched A Fish Called Wanda, you, you can. Like you can do it. It's just really hard. You have to have such physical skill. Like 
there's a moment in the beginning of the movie when Jamie Lee Curtis takes off her, I think it's a jacket, like it's, you know, like a, a spring jacket and puts on glasses and you instantly, it's the opposite of the, um, she's all that moment where you're just like, oh my God, oh my God, how, if you were a nerdy British guy, this is your dream. Like, <laughs> like a beautiful American woman with wearing glasses and asking you about your very boring job. <laughs> it's just, that is the dream. And I think she... She, she does a great job of using her sexiness, her body, her her general like aura to really push both the story forward and establish her character relative to other people, which is that she's aware of her attractiveness, but she's also very wily and very capable of a lot of different things. She she like we keep saying her charm is so over the top not even over the top, it's so, like, she's so on in every scene that you do not feel as though anybody's being duped by her or is dumb for being duped by her, I should say. Like, you totally get why they're hook, line, and sinker with her. Same way that you see with Sherry, where you're like, oh, I totally get why you would be into Sherry, and that'd be like, you would be completely focused on, like, destroying the world with her. Yeah, and at the same time, it's a great comedy character with Sherry as well, because they're both weird too in a way that's like endearing and makes them truly great characters like we said there's like a point where she's just like writhing on the floor because guys are talking in these like silly cartoon like Marx Brothers accents and stuff or like she's got this running fetish for like incest stuff that pops up a couple times in the movie at the beginning of the movie or for most of the first half of the movie she and Otto are pretending to be brother and sister as part of the con that they're pulling on the bigger crime boss as they're kind of trying to you know cut him out of the heist she tells Kevin Klein at one point that uh even if you were my brother I'd still want to fuck you and then later when she first goes to seduce John Cleese at his office and he's got a client walking in and she says goodbye uncle to him and gives him a big tongue kiss on the mouth and walks out. So it's like, she's this great, really empowered character, but she's also like weird in this way that makes her a really endearing comedy character and not just like an evil cartoon. Right. And it's the same with Sherry, like wearing the like glittery purple eye makeup and stuff when she's with Savage or like, wearing like the ridiculous sort of stupid hoop skirt where she's being Peggy Sue and stuff. It's like, it, it's that there's, there, there's that ability to, to own the sexuality, but still be really, really funny in like bizarre ways, which I think is just a great strategy to endear yourself to kind of everybody. It's giving her a weakness without making her weak, which is, I think an important thing for a woman, for a, a female character, especially at this time, uh, if you want her to be, the thing around which the entire movie pivots. You talked about double indemnity. Double indemnity. I said that right, right? I got it the third time? Yes. Okay, great. Yes. Uh, in that movie that I just mentioned twice and got it correct, um, there the main character is the insurance guy, right? It is framed through his point of view. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. You don't find out that, I mean, he, you probably realize that she's evil before him because of that whole dramatic irony thing. But no, it's not clear to him until quite late in the movie what's going on. And, and, and the camera follows that perspective, at least nominally. And literally like the first 10 seconds you see Jamie Lee Curtis, you know exactly what's going on. And the same thing with Cherry. I think that's where this idea that like, if you're going to tell that story, you have to empower these women, but you can't make them 
like I said, invulnerable, completely invincible, and like without any weird quirks or edges. You can't make them non-human robot characters. You have to give them some sort of like thing we can that oh if i spoke i know this sounds silly but if i spoke italian or if i was willing to be really evil i could have sherry or jamie lee curtis <laughs> yeah dream on nick but i i did like uh i did like something you said a minute ago you know about her not being just like fully evil because i think one of the problems of the film noir genre um and of a lot of hard-boiled detection fiction which like i i write a little bit of sometimes or kind of soft boiled, but at any rate, uh, but like, I think one of the problems of the genre is sometimes this portrayal of the femme fatale as this like uber bitch. I mean, I, I, I used the B word, uh, in the Sherry discussion in a positive way. Uh, but I, I will use it, uh, in, in its, in its general use here that like, you can't turn this character into someone who's just totally evil. And I think that this movie is super conscious of that. Because at the same time, you have the auto Kevin Klein character's obsession with Nietzsche and this idea of him like fancying himself as a Nietzschean Superman. And like they're very clear in this movie that like she's not a Nietzschean super bitch either. Like she is still a real person with like flaws. And the movie plays the, the flaws off in kind of a cute way. And that, that, like I said, that make her a character that really that you love. And even though she does kind of wily dishonest, uh, you know, things that are bad, you you still don't block her off as a shitty person the way you do say like Otto. Yeah, and I think that's, that reminds me a lot of the Sherry Shawn Michaels relationship where someone who is an irredeemable asshole for the most part becomes redeemable by virtue of being around the worst person you have ever met. <laughs> He's so bad. <laughs> Yeah, right. It's like the classic uh, Ole Anderson, Jude Cornette line about, I used to think that you were the biggest dumb fuck I've ever met, but now so many other dumb fucks have come in the door after you that you're not such a big dumb fuck anymore. <laughs> yeah, Kevin Klein. he's, I mean, he literally won an Oscar for this in a comedy, and it's a comedy. It's not a drama that's secretly a comedy. Like, this is an absurdist heist movie, basically. He is the biggest shit heel I have ever seen. <laughs> He's awful. He's so everything he does in this and there is no point at which you're like, ah, eh, maybe he's not that bad. No, he pulls off. You know, in in a lot of movies now, like hell, even in Black Panther, there's there's this kind of character type who's the like ex-CIA black ops asshole, and they're often the like the the henchmen, you know what I mean, in the uh in the action movie. It's like, he's got some of that. But at the same time, he's also like an obnoxious nerd from high school. Like he's the guy who like argued about Kevin Smith movies and stuff. I mean, obviously this movie takes place in the 80s, not the 90s. But like he, he's simultaneously this like kind of asshole, soldier of fortune, white ninja motherfucker. And then on the other hand, he's this nerd who, as Jamie Lee Curtis points out towards the end of the movie, he reads and largely misinterprets Nietzsche like obsessively so so and, and buddhism <laughs> oh, yeah. the central tenet of buddhism is not every man for themselves <laughs> sorry that one this this movie is like it, there's so many lines like that where you're just like yeah they do such a good job of characterization through comedy i think it would be the best way to describe it 
like Kevin Klein is the dumbest motherfucker. You will like he is just at the border of being too dumb to live because all the stuff he's incredibly dumb about is like high level like pretentious shit. But the fact that he is completely unable to take any criticism is like it it makes him irredeemable in a way that all you want the entire time even taking away the stuff where like he's verbally abusive to ken you just want to see this guy get his comeuppance oh yeah certainly i mean if i have one complaint about this movie it's that his comeuppance doesn't really stick in a, in a way that's super satisfying i mean i know that it's a comedy like you said and like it's a little dark to just kill a main character who you've been laughing along with at the end of a comedy movie. But like at the same time, it's like, yeah, he is so hateable. And like I said, I had forgotten the very last shot of this movie, which is like kind of an homage to the twilight zone where he, he peers his head through an airplane window after previously appearing to have been buried in concrete. And I remember I actually did just kind of go, Oh man, I thought, I thought that they killed him. I thought that Ken killed him. Like it's, it's, like I said, he's such an effective heel that I was a little disappointed that he didn't get killed at the end of the movie. <laughs> not only does he not get killed, he becomes the Minister of Justice in South Africa, which at the time was apartheid state. So, like, that is a dark fucking joke. I mean, this co- this movie is such a black comedy, like you said. And his relationship with Ken, who is played by Michael Palin, who is a member of Monty Python, Palin, sorry, uh, who is my God, Michael Palin. And he's a member of Monty Python with Junkies, who is obviously Archibald, I would assume, Leech. uh, And he wrote and co-directed this with Charles Crichton. Um, So yeah, Michael Palin uh, plays Ken, who is a good guy, kind of-ish, but he is tortured in many different ways but from literally the first time they talk by kevin by otto kevin klein's character because ken has a really bad stutter and the way that they establish so early on that kevin klein is just irredeemable it's such good wrestling technique it's we don't why this it's like mouthing off to the female ring announcer, like threatening the female ring announcer kind of stuff where you're like, this guy's just an asshole. Like there, he is immediate, like Austin Aries shit where you're like, dude, this guy's just a bad person. Like he's irredeemable from the beginning. At no point do they try to make him, they make him human, but they do not make him uh, in any way redeemable. But they also don't bring him to the point where you're just like, he would be dead. Like you get why he's still alive. Barely like that. He is talented enough. He's a weapons expert and like does a lot of impressive stuff in it. And he's a, like a, a, a seemingly like adept fighter, but he's uh, like, other than the, he has skills and positive attributes, but he has no positive qualities. If that makes sense. Like he's not a good person. And I think it helps establish that Above all else, he is the shit heel in this movie. He's the bad guy. He's the one they have to get around. Even if the actual thing is that they have to figure it, like the actual thing about the movie is the heist. He's the thing in it that feels the most wrestling to me. Like he is this kind of just this heel that is there to make you hate him. Yeah. Like the first scene, he actually really has dialogue. And like you said, the first thing he does is he, he like, so Ken has this fish tank full of, all, full of all these fish that he's like really into. And like the first thing he asks him is like, what's the deal with the fish tank? That's stupid. 
like the first thing he does is immediately make fun of someone for caring about somebody. Yeah, like, he even quotes Nietzsche. He's like, <laughs> Nietzsche called them uh, God's second greatest blunder, I believe, when he's talking about pets. Like the idea of someone that had a pet is dumb to him. Because he's a bad person. <laughs> yeah, and then he immediately jokes right away, like, "Oh yeah, they're they're good with a little bit of lemon and vinegar or whatever," which which previews or foreshadows something much darker and shitty that happens later in the movie, which is that he eats Ken's fish as a as a way of torturing him to get information out of him. So it's like the first thing he does the 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 gun in act one in this movie is him immediately coming into the room with the fish tank and being like well, what's the deal about these fish why do you care about them that's so stupid you're so stupid why are you so stupid i can't believe i'm so much smarter than you it's funny how much smarter than you i am and he's not he's the biggest fucking dumbass the the line of the movie is yes calling you stupid would be an insult to stupid people it perfectly sums up his character in this movie he is the relentless shit heel that your parents told you about he is you get why he won an oscar because at the same time like i said he stays human at no point does he become an abstraction of evil pettiness he has real human emotions he has real skills like i mentioned and he he makes a human out of the character which is something that wrestling is really 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 bad at they're really bad at making heels uh, kevin owens feels like it may be a, a, a shift in this where they're a a, a person who does incredibly bad things but they're still a human being and not some sort of like caricature of what the person making the product of the piece of art wants you to think is evil yeah i love the scene in this movie where he and Jamie Lee Curtis, TV and Kevin Klein, pronouns pal, uh, are, are in the car and they're driving around and they're kind of hashing out what kind of a relationship she is about to engage in with the John Cleese character. And she, she says, oh, I thought you weren't jealous. And he goes in this whole thing about, oh, oh, jealousy is for the weak. But then he clearly is like, well, well, what are you going to do? Are you going to, you know, literally like, are you going to kiss him? And then she says like, oh, well, I think he's going to touch my boobs. And like he go, he gets into this whole thing of like, well, if you touch his dick, I'm gonna he's dead or whatever. Like if he just there's this just kind of like petty weakness and jealousy, this this like crack in the wall, which is very funny. But as you say, it's also really humanizing in a way. Like it's it's true. Like it's even if someone is not as cartoonishly arrogant and insecure as that character is, like it's still true of people who are kind of like that. Like it's, it's such a true little moment of character building. And I agree. I think Kevin Owens is a kind of a good analogy because he has this fully fleshed out life where like he has a family and he has hobbies, which like most people in the WWE, unless they're married to other performers aren't allowed to have. And like, that's something that maybe is, is as important to him as wrestling. And that's something that if in a point in the future where he was a baby face, like that's something that a heel could exploit. Or that's something that, you know, even in a dark moment when he talks about his kids, you're like, ah, he's a, he's a human being. And I think Kevin Klein brings a similar quality in this movie through his like insecurity about being stupid and his insecurity about the idea that, that you know, that, that Wanda may or may not truly be with him. Yeah, he, you actually, I don't want to say you feel bad for him. Like you don't sympathize with him because I don't give you a reason to, but you do I think I slightly disagree with the idea that he, the way they, so Ken runs him over in a steamroller while screaming out the names of the fish he killed and the word revenge. So 
like I'm fine with Ken getting that come up that that resolution for himself it literally cures his stuttering <laughs> uh which is kind of a terrible joke but i feel slightly better because uh michael palin opened the center for stammering children in england and it's like a really important resource in england so like he made penance for his performance in this movie but there's this idea with otto that if you stripped away all the shittiness you could build him back up into a, a person, right? And I, I think that that's not the case with, say, Drew McIntyre's just a fucking monster asshole. I love Drew McIntyre. I think he's a great performer. But the reason his character doesn't usually work, or and it definitely didn't work when he was first in the WWE, is because he's just a mean guy. I have no reason to be interested in him being a mean guy. And the fact that he's like six foot seven and built out of fucking stone, it helps him. But he, he is starting to develop a character because he is upset about the way his first run in WWE went. And it's allowing him to become this like awful monster heel. And the it's because they have these – it works in the opposite way that the vulnerabilities do for Sherry and for Jimmy Lee Curtis. It makes it so that you feel like they're overtakeable. And that makes them much more interesting characters because they're not just this invincible thing that they're going to have to, whoever's involved, whoever you're rooting for, the protagonists in that given space, uh, in that given whatever, are not going to have to like do things that there's no way you would ever conceive them of being able to do in order to beat them. They just have to like not fuck up completely. Yeah, you know, the other Kevin Klein performance that this movie reminds me the most of is he played Nick Bottom in uh, the the uh, Kenneth Branagh Midsummer Night's Dream, I don't know, maybe fifteen years ago now, fifteen twenty years ago now, but that's that's a Shakespeare play, obviously. And Bottom is kind of the captain of like the low characters, the rude mechanicals, they're sometimes called. And like in Midsummer Night's Dream, there's a lot of kind of complex, like a uh, romantic comedy. It's it's really is a, a rom com and almost of a nineteen nineties level. But at the same time, uh, the rude mechanics are putting on a play within a play and they're terrible actors. And like even within the structure of the romantic comedy, the rude mechanicals provide this vent where there's like slapstick comedy. So and when people talk about Shakespeare a lot, they talk they point to Midsummer Night's Dream and say that like this is an example of Shakespeare writing for two different audiences, that it's like there's the whole fairyland rom-com aspect of the play. But then there's also the like, slapstick working class guys trying to put on a play. And one of the things that I think about works about the characters in this movie is they do feel like the rude mechanicals from, from Midsummer Night's Dream. They do feel like these like very earnest, very real, but like flawed in fundamental ways that make them ridiculous and kind of fun to laugh at slash with this movie. Maybe it is that just kind of British influence on it. But I, I feel the influence of Shakespeare comedies in this movie very much, especially like the the ending and stuff. Like you said, the cured stammer, how that's just sort of like hackneyed and silly. But that is the sort of like miraculous, hey, problems fixed kind of thing that would happen at the end of the Shakespeare comedy. Like there, there is something Shakespearean about this movie that I, I don't think I appreciated when I was a teenager that I, I really saw and loved this time. The dichotomy between John Cleese and Kevin Klein really helps the switching back and forth between genres of like a caper and a straight up comedy. 
which I think is the transition from George at the beginning of the movie to uh, as the like heavy to or the person involved that has the most power to fuck things up. Uh, and then Ar- uh, Archie, uh, John Cleese's character, that the, he kind of plays the transition between the two from this heist movie, right? This like very straightforward heist movie to this completely absurdist comedy where like Michael Palin's character, uh, where Ken drops a, a like, I'm pretty sure only on cartoons thing of. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Full-on Bugs Bunny, full-on Roadrunner sidekick. Murder somebody's dog, like, and... Subsequently giving them a heart attack. But but, but it worked because she was the original Yeah, exactly, like... It's a perfect joke. It's, like, it's it's such a good joke. And he's so happy when he finds out. (laughs) Yeah, there's a a crowd of people, you know, gathered over this old woman who's dead on the pavement, and he just starts laughing like a lunatic and like, and like strutting away. And it away. really it's sticks awesome. with the idea of him being an animal lover because he feels awful about killing dogs. He really doesn't want to. He just wants to kill the old lady, which sounds awful. But he, but the dog bit him, which makes it relatively yeah. okay, which I like. That's like a good touch. Yeah, no, I'm agreeing a, with you. As a writer, that's a great touch. In it's the that, like these play. dogs are as much assholes as this lady is. And you understand that she has to die. So making it happen in like a funny way. Cause every time he kills all three of her dogs <laughs> and each time they have a funeral. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it's like, God is great. God is eternal. The dog is dead. Like, I think that's literally what they're saying. It's something like that in Latin. In short and certain hope of the resurrection to eternal life. And um, but that's this like a crazy absurdist comedy after the beginning of the movie is almost a straight heist until that turn that like physical turn of Jamie Lee Curtis meeting up with John Cleese's character. It's a movie that is a heist movie that's is a caper because it's a funny heist movie. And that scene is where you really start to build towards it being just this basically like a a uh, ground level uh, like version of something like uh, almost like a Monty Python and the Holy Grail where it's this like everything's happening in a way that's super heightened comedically but it's supposed to take place in this like quasi real but clearly fake and constructed world like I don't know how to explain it but there's this Britishness to it I don't as somebody who like I didn't grow up with British television the way you did but like i watched a lot of british television because like my grandma was my italian grandma was super into like the bb uh like the late night british shows so like i have an idea of this it's a movie that's just about the thing that it's about but it's all of these other things too it's a very straightforward like this is the a couple of days in the lives of these like five people right but it also does a great job of being a heist movie and an absurdist comedy because it has this slice of life almost aspect to it like it really does a great job of using kevin klein's character and his associations with everyone else to pull the movie towards a direction and that direction ends up being this like crazy absurdist comedy but the tonal shifts work yeah definitely i mean i think that this movie does have a a definitely like a strong british influence to it one thing that really really struck me 
is in the first 10 minutes of this movie, they lay out so much exposition so fast and really expect the audience to know what's going on in terms of the politics and the mechanics of the heist. Like that would either be 20 minutes in an American movie or not happen at all. But like in the first few minutes of the movie, it, it strikes me as very British. It reminds me of like a lot of the British prestige, like mystery shows, like the David Suchet Poirots and the, the Jeremy Brett, Sherlock Holmes and stuff, how like some of those, you know, TV movies were 90, 120 minutes long and they would just be packed with like every line of dialogue from the original stories, from the text and like every detail. And they would ask you to hold on to so much more than they ask viewers to hold on to on like Law and Order or, uh, or Murder, She Wrote or whatever, like American equivalent. So that was one thing that really struck me about this movie as being very, very English was the way they just opened and they were like, there's kind of a complex situation here, but you know what? We trust that you're smart enough to pick it up and we're just gonna kind of drop you in the middle of it and like trust you. Like I said, there was a trust for the viewer to understand a complex scenario that struck me as really British. But another thing that you mentioned is kind of John Cleese is the pivot point of the movie. You know, when I was 14 or 15 in high school and I watched this the first time, I remember being really disappointed because I knew him as like, one of the Monty Python guys and like among the most ridiculous of them in terms of doing like, I don't know, like Spanish llama song, one of the kind of one of my very favorite Python bits ever. You know what I mean? Like he, he was the cheese shop or the, the dead parrot. Like he's this responsible. This parrot has ceased to be, sorry. Exactly. Exactly. So he, but he's in, so I, when I first saw this movie, I was like a little, uh, frustrated that he was so strapped down that he wasn't like Basil Fawlty or that he wasn't like the Monty Python, you know, characters that he portrayed in the sketches. But I think now as an adult, that that's what's brilliant about the movie, yep. that he definitely is the anchor of everything. And that, like, you know, especially because like, once again, kind of to, 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 to come to wrestling here a little bit. It's almost the kayfabe, the, the smart mark, the you know that that's John Cleese, so you know John Cleese is from Monty Python. So you know that he has the potential within him, even in this crazy barrister character, to, to go off the rails and become goofy. And you see that in the sex scene with the accents. And you see that with the, the scene where the other family walks in on him naked in his <laughs> buddy's house and stuff. Like... You, you start to see him unwind a little bit and it, it shows you that he has the potential within him to become this different person. Like I said, the other characters, the characters involved in the heist feel like these low characters from Shakespeare, like the rude mechanics, but he feels like something heightened and noble mm -hmm. until those moments and that he's kind of, I don't want to say brought down to their level, but he's made like almost better than real or more special than real by kind of busting out of the framework of his life in these strange ways. And, and like you said, his transformation causes a transformation in other characters. Like it directly leads to a transformation in Wanda and if not, if not in terms of like plot mechanics, at least thematically and in terms of timing, it also mirrors Ken's transition from being just a competent thief who lets people push him around to being a competent thief who, who you know, it demands respect and, and, and you know, uh, wants people to recognize him as, as the, the talented individual that he is. So, so when I was a kid, I didn't like that he wasn't goofy enough, but now as an adult, I totally see that like that strap down this and that subtle shift is really, 
the thing that makes the movie work. Like Jamie Lee, along with Jamie Lee Curtis's performance, like her performance of the character it's makes amazing. the movie work. And then his turn, his turn, which causes her turn is just, it's really well done. And like I said, it's a, it's a well written movie just in a yes. way that it's great to see a really well written comedy. Like I literally said earlier, it reminds me of Shakespeare. Yeah. It does a fantastic job of making John Cleese breakdown. I don't want to call it breakdown because he's very explicit about like how much it sucks to be English and how Jamie Lee Curtis's character Wanda is freeing to him. Like they explain very strongly without beating you over the head with it, that like, this is why he's changing. Also, he's stuck in a loveless marriage and uh, Wendy, his wife, Oh God, she's so good. <laughs> she's like what I imagined uh, a like awful British older middle-aged white British woman would be like, like she per- personifies it so perfectly where she's just like, she's just yelling at her brow beaten husband and she's the one with all of the money, but he's the one with like the important job. It's just like this perfect encapsulation of the like, and I don't think it's meant in a misogynist way, but the demasculation of a, a certain kind of British man and it's, I don't even think it's emasculation. I think it's this like... Well, I'll just jump in and say that Kevin Klein, his character, multiple times in the movie, make jokes about all British men being gay, including using the F word yes. at one point. Like it's The movie is very direct about the difference between American men and English men. I think that that's like one of the themes of the movie that's established like right away in that first encounter between Otto and Ken and like then that tension kind of transitions to the the struggle between between uh uh between Archie sorry I keep forgetting his name because I, I it's John, John Cleese and, <laughs> and, and Archie which is Cary Grant's real name so like that's that's very confusing I mean it's a good reference but it's it's confusing when you're trying to say names out loud uh but but like the, yeah that there's 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 this kind of Anglo-American difference that's being explored in the movie, but particularly with regard to like, yeah, this sort of like soft brow beaten sexuality versus like the auto character who like in the sex scene with Jamie Lee Curtis, where I was talking about the funny visual with the legs earlier, like when he climaxes, he does this like 15 or 20 second long take to the camera of like this 50 stage high spot of an O face and like it's he's he's just like this like he's like the wolf in the cartoon when he sees the lady he's like this completely <laughs> unapologetically self-obsessively masculine sexual guy but at the same time he has all those jealous insecurities that i was talking about the humanizing earlier but there's definitely a lot of play with with contrasting that with the more traditional depiction of 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 english people especially middle and upper class english men as, as more strapped down and repressed. Yeah, and the use of these themes, I think, is really what helps keep the the, the, the tonal shifts we've been talking about. Uh, th- this idea, especially of the, with, in terms of the individual relationships with everybody else, they each get their own, like, reason they're feuding. And I think that really helps to keep the movie going in a way that because it's a comedy right talked about this in the yellow submarine episode with the only a northern song and and those kind of interludes in the in the movie being kind of like a ricochet will osprey match where like the selling's different and it's more of like a high-flying spectacle than a traditional wrestling match you might be used to but it has value and you can do an entire show of those in a way that 
um, pay-per-view or a show with all comedy matches might be kind of a nightmare. This movie pulls it off because they keep interweaving all of the different themes of the movie into this coherent Monty Python movie. It, it feels, that's the way it feels very Monty Python to me is that it's very, it's these dis, it's somewhat not disjointed. Cause like everything, there's a through, there's a narrative through line, right? Like everything happens after the other thing that caused it to happen. That makes sense. But the, the tonal shifts, like uh, my favorite part in the movie is probably the part where Kevin Klein, uh, where Otto holds Archie outside the window and Archie apologizes in the most British slash lawyerly way possible. All right, all right, I apologize. You're really sorry. I'm really, really sorry. I apologize unreservedly. You take it back. I do. I offer a complete and utter retraction. The imputation was totally without basis in fact and was in no way fair comment and was motivated purely by malice. And I deeply regret any distress that my comments may have caused you or your family. And I hereby undertake not to repeat any such slander at any time in the future. Okay. And that's to me where the movie goes straight from this caper movie to like, it's a Monty Python movie now. Like this is an, this is a Monty Python sketch. I have seen it. Like not exactly this, but like this idea of a person acting in the most British way possible to an aggressor is to me like a quintessential Monty Python idea that Utah, like you mentioned, the Anglo-American conflict, that difference between them, the juxtaposition between them in a literal sense and in a figurative sense. And that scene really is to me like the different, what you can do to make a comedy thing work is you like have to add other elements. You couldn't have a 10 comedy matches, but you could have like eight comedy matches that all work on different things and like two matches that are kind of semi-serious, but not like bloodletting nightmares. You know what I'm saying? Like there is an idea of using the underlying interesting things about the things that you're actually trying to say in this movie, in the background of this like structure of like joke is like comic set piece, comic set piece, comic set piece that all connect, but are all separate in their own, like funny in their own way and for their own reasons. Yeah, definitely. I think you could you could break this movie up. There are maybe, I would say that the five or six best and funniest scenes in this movie would make like funny, like just sketches. Like you could break this movie up into sketches and all of those sketches would be funny, but they still work great and work even better like all together. It's actually a really impressive accomplishment in that way. But I, I mean, they're doing this like 14, 15 years after Monty Python's Flying Circus ended its run. And I, I think it shows, like, I think that there are some of the best elements of, like you said, that wild, anything is possible, stop making sense, so to speak, not to reference our other, uh, our other Talking Heads episode, but there is that kind of aesthetic to it. But I really like the way that the movie is informed by, like, Hollywood cinema. It does reflect, like I said, those neo-noir trends and those kind of black comedy of the late 80s trends. So I think one of the things that makes this a really, really great movie, like I said, is is that it, it is kind of informed by so many different good things. It's like there's this whole Monty Python aesthetic that they're kind of holding on to, but they're not married to, and they let it work when it works, and they don't bother with it when it doesn't work. On the other hand, there's this film noir aspect, this kind of crime thriller aspect, and they use it when it works, but they're not married to it when it doesn't work. And then there's this black comedy aspect too, and they're, you know, they're not married to it when it doesn't work. It's like 
somehow they really balance a lot of different ways of presenting comedy, which goes back to like the, the very first thing I said at the beginning is like this movie feels like it crosses so many genres and, and accomplishes so much because it's not just one thing. Mm -hmm. It's a lot more than one thing, but somehow it's also uh, its own whole. Yeah. And the acting performances uniformly in this mat in this match in this movie are fucking great. Like it is one of the best acted movies you in terms of a comedy, especially everyone brings their a game. And I, I feel like that helps the, the actual just quality of the, the material is really top notch, but there's also these ideas that they have running throughout the movie that, help you help in the same way that the the like the idea of loyalty or the conflict or contrast between Americans and English people and like they kind of allow you to not worry too much about the logistics of all of the things like how would a dude be in three like get into a car accident because Ken gets into a car accident the second time he tries to kill one of the dogs the first time he's in a van that lets a dog loose and the third time he just you know Bugs Bunny's the the last dog there's this idea that you don't have, like you're watching you don't really worry about them him getting caught you understand that's not part of the deal and I feel like there's this beautiful simplicity to what you're watching that really helps to keep you going when you're like, ah, because I remember specifically like the part where John Cleese, the family comes in and John Cleese is buck naked. And that part is almost cringy to me. And ask Dave, like if something's cringy to me, I can't watch it. Like I have to leave the room. I don't do well, well with being triggered. And that scene would be really uncomfortable for me. But I also know like the next scene's going to be what it is. You know what I'm saying? Like I know that I'm going to get these little morsels that they've put throughout the movie and it makes me want to like stay for that extra 10 seconds instead of doing what I usually do, which is like pulling away from this like uncomfortableness. Yeah. And I think that speaks to something we were talking about a few minutes ago, which is just that like the movie is, is really well written. And I think you're right to kind of point out that like one of the ways in which it's well written and one of the ways it keeps you engaged is even throughout these tonal shifts from like caper movie to like you said some kind of cringy stuff in the middle to just totally madcap absurdist by the end through all these tonal shifts they still respect and service those themes that were introduced in the very first scene like you said there's like the loyalty piece right it's like the first scene ken says you really like animals don't you ken what's the attraction because you could trust them and they don't <laughs> shit on you shove off and then uh and then the anglo-american conflict introduced in that first scene as well and then i would say like there's other like there's the whole theme of like innocence right like the ken the ken is kind of an innocent and and otto portrays himself as this very worldly knowledgeable man but at the same time like he's kind of a a dumbass and we have this evolution of the john cleese character from innocence to knowledge or like on the same at the same time, there's also like status. That's another theme, like being with a status woman, having a status job, the status that comes with money and doing your job well, et cetera, et cetera. Like all of those themes are serviced in almost every single scene of the movie. And like you said, as someone who finds it easy to walk away from things, like for you, it's cringe. For me, it's like, I, I don't know. I have trouble, like I said, I have trouble sitting for really much more than 90 minutes and watching a movie. I find it really easy to walk into the other room and like make a snack and 
put my headphones in and start listening to a podcast and forget that I'm listening to a movie. But like this movie is so tight in its exploration of the themes that it keeps you engaged even as things swerve around. And I think that that's something that like wrestling could really, really learn and pay attention to that. Like if you establish stakes that matter and themes that people care about and, and conflicts that people can understand and root for people in like then doing everything else is easy and people are, are willing to go along for the ride. But I think if you contrast wrestling with this movie, I think that's one of the big differences is like this movie has all these little touches where they're constantly servicing the themes, constantly keeping things tight, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas like wrestling, it's all about like, let's get to the next funny bit or let's get to the next mm. memorable bit. And like, yeah, exposition is boring and like world building can be boring when it's not done right. But like at the same time, you need to have depth. You need to have, you were talking about the world of this, this movie and how it feels kind of heightened. Like it's not quite real, but it's obviously real London and they're sort of real people, but it's heightened. Like the movie is so well constructed that it keeps you engaged by its faithfulness to the world that it's created. And that's so often what's dissonant about wrestling, especially the WWE, especially for me. Yeah, and I, I feel like, I mean, we bag on modern wrestling a lot, even though I... I or me, specifically. <laughs> I, but I, I will say, I, I agree with you in terms of Raw. I think SmackDown has moved away from the variety show model that informs so much of Raw's bad content. There is this idea that, like, they at least at the very least have started establishing characters and real stakes. They haven't got to the point where themes are important yet, which is something that old wrestling, old wrestling, wrestling from the eighties did really, really well because I guess there was, for lack of a better term, there was, they could borrow from things, right? Like we talk all the time about dusty, all dusty road storylines are basically Westerns. They could borrow from stuff. And it wasn't like, Oh, I've seen this. I can just watch Gunsmoke for, I can watch 20 seasons of Gunsmoke on Netflix. It was like, that was a way in which you would find yourself picking off parts of popular culture. And I think this movie has the same idea. And you look at something like uh, NWA, which we'll be talking about in the podcast beyond um, in a couple of weeks, uh, which we'll be making some announcements for. Um, you see with them that, for instance, the horsemen are kind of implicitly racist and they use that as a way to every once in a while remind you that like, oh, they're assholes. They're bad people. There's the themes of like acceptance and forgiveness that that NWA uses a lot uh, at, at that time. There, there have been wrestling shows and I think honestly SmackDown is getting better when I was thinking about like Daniel Bryan for me is a really interesting character that I think does a good job in terms of there's stakes attached to his character and his character has a very clear theme. I am the planet champion. I'm not the people's champion. And you can root for or against that, which is why when you throw in somebody that the crowd is into like Kofi, it just lights it on fire. And I, I feel like they have certain people that can do these things, but they wait, wait, wait. You, you must stop Ali. Sorry. Continue. Oh, did why? But why you gotta Mustafa Ali's great? No, I'm not saying he's bad. I'm just saying that you know you you these are two guys who are great. You specifically wanted Kofi, so we're gonna give you Mustafa. Ali. <laughs> basically the same, right? <laughs> um, but no, I feel like that even that has a theme, which is that like Kofi's being held back. Whether they're gonna say it explicitly or not is a different story. Like even that, I think does 
they are getting better because they're looking at NWA, which did this better than any. I remember distinctly when we were doing the Arn stuff, just being taken away, like taken aback, I should say, by uh, by their actual like nuanced discussions about, or not nuanced, but not ignorant conversations about race, let's say. Like they were actually able to like attach themes to things and talk about things in the same way that like, and again, to use Daniel Bryan, who we use a lot, he is saying like, People like Vince McMahon are the reason the world's a shitty place, which like gets the discussion is the world a shitty place, but it also like is an actual thing. But he's such an asshole that we don't want to root for him. Like there are things going on, but I, I agree with you fundamentally, especially on Raw. Raw's just like a shit show where they just like put a bunch of shit in a blender, and then like right when they get to the part, the, like the top level, the top speed for the blender, they rip off the top and the shit just goes flying everywhere and they're like well some of it stuck so that means it was good and it's like no all of it was terrible and there's shit everywhere but i I definitely agree that wrestling is at its best when it's this movie is both simultaneously the least and most wrestling movie I, i it's not wrestling related at all and but in terms of the things that it does well it's to me like the shining example of what wrestling should be no i know exactly what you mean there. And I will say just to, to talk a little bit more about current WWE before we, we wrap up with the question or whatever. Uh, I, I think that a great example of what we're both talking about is something that happened on Fastlane, which was with the, the Shane McMahon turn or not turn where he was, was mean to the Miz's dad and stuff. Like, I like that. That's a nice touch that gives more depth to the Daniel Bryan character and empowers him more because it's the like, oh, look, this thing that Daniel Bryan's been talking about, look, here's an example of it. Here's mm-hmm. one of the McMahons who presents himself as one of you and acts like he's the guy who, you know, wants to give you the coast to coast and jump off the cage to show you how much he loves you. Like, look, here's him being an asshole for no reason to someone who's less physically powerful to him and who's older than him, etc., etc. Like, I thought that was a great example of something the WWE is doing right now that's a great example of these sort of like details these little underpinning pieces that buoy everything up so when i said that modern wrestling like didn't do that i wasn't necessarily saying like oh wwe right now is the shits but like i think that's a perfect what is the shits <laughs> I, I, I i literally i think i watched one complete episode of raw in the last watched well, one complete hulu version of raw in the last three years and that was the one whatever that was like eight months ago when people are like oh my god it's the worst episode of raw ever whenever that was i watched that one specifically uh but 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 no but like that so i wasn't trying to bad enough wwe at any oh no but i think it's an important discussion to have because you look at what i guess i think raw in particular does this as bad as you possibly can it is the like whatever the opposite of the er example of something is this is the like this idea of constant themes about which you reflect uh, like that you use to reflect back your values as an organization or as a, uh, as people trying to create characters, all of that stuff is not done on raw. It's done on SmackDown. It's done in eighties wrestling, but I wholeheartedly agree with you. I wanted to more make clear how wholeheartedly I agree with you that like there are serious failings at the top level of wrestling to, and this is something we talked about a bunch, all this established stake stuff, but like understand that you can get away with all the stuff they want to do if they do it correctly. It's just doing it well and having, they have the great performers. They have the Jamie Lee Curtis's and they have the John Cleese's and they have all these great performers, but it's putting them in spots where they feel like they have some agency and are able to do things that are experimental and interesting and 
question what movie I'm watching, basically. Like, am I watching something? Is this the same thing I thought? Like, something stupid like the the files, the fashion files, was, like, an interesting idea that changed the, like, dynamic of, like, what does it mean to be on a wrestling show? And I feel like that's this movie is just such a well done like i get why it's a it considered like a comedy classic it's such a well done th- above all else just doing things well and with ener- the right energy and the right care you can make greatness and i think that's ultimately like the thing that wrestling needs to learn is that as long as you have a good structural integrity of your product you can do a lot of stuff because Fans, audiences are willing to go places with you, which is why A Fish Called Wanda works, because they build and they build and they build and they build and it goes from this heist to this absurdist comedy. But at no point you're like, wow, that's crazy that they're doing this in this movie. Every time something happens in the movie, you're like, oh, based on my previous understanding of this world, that kind of makes sense. And then they build it a little bit more and it's like, oh, that makes sense. And it's like, oh, that makes sense. They don't at any point sell out their world because they put in the work in the in-betweens to make it so that each of the transitions makes sense to you. Yeah, so uh, this is this one, the question I've been thinking about, actually, like one I really had to like figure out what I wanted to say. This movie is filled with brilliant, like literally some of the best physical comedic performances of all time like i really in terms of a movie that is fairly straight laced and not like it's a mad 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 world that i have enough mads in that um this is a movie that relies so much on physical comedy that it like it, that part feels very wrestling wrestlingly in the in terms of however the, however the fuck you would say that word it really feels like you're seeing people be physical in a space uh, being i'm oh, sorry using their phys- their physicality to be funny in the way that like wrestlers use their physicality to tell stories. And and I, to me that's why I like spend a lot of time thinking about who are the best physical comedians in comedy and, and in wrestling cuz like I think there's because to me for uh, I'll do wrestling first and I'm interested to see your comedy and then we can switch off. Um Stone Cold Steve Austin to me is like one of the great comedy bumpers and physical comedians in wrestling history like his facial performances and his bumping and his especially when he was a shit heel and he was he didn't have a broken neck are genuinely funny without ever making him look like he's not tough oh yeah definitely i think that he really was i agree especially before his broken neck especially sort of I don't know, at the peak of his powers, maybe like post Hollywood blondes, but before he'd left WCW where, you know, he, where his psychology as a heel was really, really strong and his body was still in, in reasonably good shape. I agree. He, he was a great physical comedian. In fact, I think that while he often says that he was just kind of imitating Ric Flair, I think there's certain aspects of stuff that he actually did a little better than Flair. Like mm-hmm. take that really floppy, uh, snappy bump with like his arms up above his head. You know what I mean? Just, really kind of looking like he was going as he like fell, like really, really selling in this kind of comedic heel way. I think that's a a great, great call. If you want to go all the way back to the early days, I mean like Buster Keaton is pretty undeniable as like the king of taking bumps. Like if you look at like a Bobby Keenan, who I consider to be kind of one of the best wrestling uh, slapstick artists, like he took all, he borrowed a lot of stuff from Buster Keaton in terms of the way that he would that he would tumble uh, or that he would react to getting punched in the face or that he would react to taking an uppercut. So if you want to go like way back into ancient history, uh, I think, I think Buster Keaton is the best. And I I know this is going to be groan inducing for some people, but like, I think that Jim Carrey is pretty undeniable. No, I think he's great. 
hours, like during like mask, I would say maybe from mask to liar, liar, like that run. And then when you get to like eternal sunshine and, you know, like, uh, 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 not Ed TV. What was the one that he was oh, in? Oh, Truman Show. So thank you so much. When you get into the more serious stuff or then fun with Dick and Jane, where he's in a more traditional movie doing a little bit of slapstick, like that stuff's all still good. But I think that that kind of run from like the mask through liar, liar, just his ability to do so much with his face and his body and his limbs and his gait and his voice. I think that he's certainly someone who like, I'm sure that guy's annoying if you're around him a lot, but but he's just an incredible, undeniable physical performer. Yeah, I was actually going to say him or Melissa McCarthy, who really over the last 10 years, she's, there's a reason she can be in Spy and like Tammy and all of these other movies. And she's a bankable comedy star because she's both a brilliant comedian and physically she does the fatty fall down stuff without framing it that way that like the that's what to be clear that's what chris farley used to call his like humor was fatty fall down she's like that is not her character but her physical character in space is is treated as like a uh, especially when she's dealing with like smaller people like she is allowed to roll with the guys and do things that i i, I think are really interesting for a female comedian and everything I've seen of her in terms of her physical comedy is really like, she's really impressive as a, like just as a physical performer. It's really every movie she, even when she's doing something more subtle, her physical presence is always really important to her characters. Yeah, definitely. If you want to throw out some other, uh, some other comedians, I would say that like, uh, I think that, that like Molly Shannon, when she was doing like Mary Catherine Gallagher, where she would do the bit where she would fall into the stack of folding chairs or she would knock down like the walls of the, the bathrooms and stuff like that. Like she was like, she was doing that at the highest level at the, at the point where there weren't a lot of comedians getting leads in like movies and stuff. So I think that she was, she's someone who's important to talk about too. And another SNL wig, who, or, uh, I gave it away. Another SNL alum who I think is really excellent is Kristen Wiig. Uh, like she did all of her bits to death on SNL, but as like a reactive face and someone who has, and I mean this in like a loving way where she's very talented. I don't mean it in a mean way. She literally has just like a funny looking reactive kind of physicality. Just like the way she moves her body around is different from other people and is inherently funny. Just like with some wrestlers, you say like the way they move around the ring is inherently different from other people. I think like the way that she uses her body physically is inherently different from other people. And that makes her kind of special. So there's a couple more people. Yeah. And also, of course we t- spent an entire beginning of the episode talking about Jamie the Curtis, obviously like really high on this list too. Uh, just a brilliant physical presence in movies. Uh, so did you have anything to plug this week, Dave? Oh, definitely. I got the plugs uh, as normal. Follow me on Twitter at Dave writes junk. Follow the show at H-W-E-T-W pod and be sure to be checking out our YouTube channel where lots of really exciting things are happening. Uh, Thanks to Nick, we are officially dropping some really slick videos uh, with some nice audio clips from kind of the best of season one uh, with some with some cool videos in and out. They kind of show off what Nick's really capable of and they show off what we as a show uh, are really capable of. So one of the reasons we created those was to make the show a little more shareable. So if you head over to our YouTube channel, check out those best of season one clips that are appearing over the next few weeks. 
check those out and also check out the wrestling estate where my work appears. Yeah, and you can check me out at the Nixer. That's T-H-E-N-1-C-K-S-T-E-R. You can check us out at HowWrestlingExplains.Podbean.com. And you can rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and the Google Play Store. Oh, yeah, that reminds me, Nick. I, I did want to mention before we wrap things up here, a big thank you to Connor Johnson or uh, John Connerson, uh, as, as he, he calls himself on the social needs, uh, for giving us a, a big old five-star review uh, since our last appeal. We have doubled our number. We now have two. Uh, one from he and one from CoolMark69. Uh, so we're obviously getting the high-quality reviews from the high-quality people that we're looking for. So I just wanted to uh, thank Connor personally, thank Mark personally. And once again, just make the call. You know, if you got just, you know, one minute, 90 seconds at some point in your day, you can just jump on iTunes and give us that five-star review. You don't even need to write, like, lengthy feedback. You could just say, like, I enjoy this show. It's great. Or you could say, um, I don't know, you could say like Baba Booey, Baba Booey, whatever. But, but, but just give those five stars. That's what really matters. But so thanks so much to Connor and Mark. And uh, what the fuck's wrong with the rest of you? It, this is easy. Get, get at it. Wow. Um, you got to be direct with your calls to action, Nick. You can't, you can't, you can't invite them to convert. You got you to gotta make it seem obligatory. I, I'm pretty sure that's how like the crusade started. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm aiming high here. You said you loved him! That's right, Otto! Now here's a multiple choice question for you. A, Wanda was lying. B, Wanda was telling the truth. Which one are you gonna pick? What was the first one? You told me you were not planning to see him! I knew you would come along and fuck it up! I was dealing with something delicate, Otto. I'm setting up a guy who's incredibly important to us who's going to tell me where the loot is and if they're going to come and arrest you, and you'll come loping in like Rambo without a jockstrap and you dangle him at a fifth-floor window. Now, was that smart? Okay. Was it shrewd? Was it good tactics, or was it stupid? Don't call me stupid. Oh, right! To call you stupid would be an insult to stupid people! I've known sheep that could outwit you. I've worn dresses with higher IQs, but you think you're an intellectual, don't you, ape? Apes don't read philosophy. Yes, they do, Otto. They just don't understand it. Now, let me correct you on a couple things, okay? Aristotle was not Belgian. The central message of Buddhism is not every man for himself. And the London Underground is not a political movement. Those are all mistakes, Otto. I looked them up. Now... You have just assaulted the one man who can keep you out of jail and make you rich. So what are you going to do about it, huh? What would an intellectual do? What would Plato do? Pardon me? What? Apologize. Right. I'm sorry. No. Not to me, to Archie. And make it good, or we're dead. Here among the poor, sad, despicable, oppressive, misinformed. Let me have for you to bite your tongue, say.